If you're tuning in, welcome to Stage Dives, the new podcast brought to you by Smack Media out of Toronto, Canada. We plan to go to the best concerts in the city and beyond to give you a deep dive on our favorite artists, plus all of the best stories in the entertainment world. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to visit our website at smackmedia.ca where you can find new content and readables from our three-year archive, which means lists. Think pieces, features, reviews, cool stuff we saw on the internet, the whole nine. Hey, if you love the 90s, make sure you check out our Top 40's Best Songs of the 90s feature on our website, where we do our best to take you through one of our favorite music decades, just to 1998. Read to find out why. It includes Nirvana, Radiohead, Biggie, Tribe, Daft Punk, even Shania Twain made the cut. Lots of good stuff. You can find, us, you can find that once more uh, on our website, smackmedia.ca. On today's episode, recorded on March 20th. I'm a Botticelli Venus with a penis. Nick Cave coming right up. <laughs> All right, I'm here with my boy Nate, Nate Crater. Uh, say hello to the crowd. Hey, everybody. Hey, Aaron. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, no, it's an honor. It's an absolute honor. Uh, we're, we're here talking about Australian uh, singer-songwriter, author, screenwriter, composer, occasional actor, an alternative icon for four decades, Mr. Nick Cave, uh, a man who is instantly recognized through his shock of black hair and pale, emaciated look, through his baritone voice and emotional intensity that have acted as the channel that takes us through his lyrical obsessions with love, violence, religion, melancholia. And, of course, death and loss, first with his father at the age of 19, a time Cave called his most confused, and then his son, which kicked off a new era of Nick Cave that we are currently living in. The man fronted and founded the birthday party, one of the city's leading post-punk bands in the late 70s with his grammar schoolmates. They played hundreds of shows in Melbourne before their move to London in 1980, where they quickly gained a reputation for confrontational performances, one journalist even calling them famously a one-band war. <laughs> the UK in the 80s was desolate, divided, racist, gray. He became disillusioned with life there, which completely affected his music and made it more challenging. He's obsessed with America. Elvis, Blind Lemon Jefferson, John Lee Hooker, Lead Belly, Johnny Cash, Hank Williams. Add that in with the literary aspirations he nurtured as, a, as the son of a professor, and you throw in a little Leonard Cohen, and you get a unique hybrid of spoken word, gothic, psychosexual poetry – pitch black humor, and devilish rock and roll. His most famous songs include Zoo Music Girl, Nick the Stripper, Release the Bats, King Inc., Red Right Hand, his signature song The Mercy Seat, Staggeredly, Stranger Than Kindness, Into My Arms, No Pussy Blues. Help me out here, Nick. Nate, Palace is Montezuma? Palace is Montezuma. Thank you, Palace is Montezuma. <laughs> Henry Lee, where the wild roses go from here to eternity. I didn't miss any. Did I, Mr. Mr. Crater? I think that's a pretty good set. <laughs> cool. uh, while his contemporaries released great American songbook CDs for Starbucks and, do, and did commercials for J.C. Penney, Nick Cave has aged like a fine wine at the focus of a ton of academia and continues to release lasting albums and big shows. His prolific career, less a trajectory than a series of reinventions – is less uh, is less a trajectory than a series of reinventions. 
The Bad Seeds alone have released 17 albums. He has scored and composed for 25 projects for film and theater. He's contributed on a backbreaking 33 records. He's published 10 books, including a children's book last year called The Little Thing. His songs have been covered by Johnny Cash, Metallica, Snoop Dogg, Arctic Monkeys, Fever Ray, Sun Kill Moon, Sharon Van Etten, My Morning Jacket, Iggy Pop, My Ruin. Depeche Mode's Martin Gore and PJ Harvey. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers called him the greatest living songwriter. Ashley Crawford called him a marionette on amphetamines. His last Carnage tour, currently running, is taking him through North America until April, and it's already brought him through the UK last fall. Then, him and the Bad Seeds are touring Europe throughout the summer. Nate, why is he your favorite artist? First of all, and then how does that relate to how was the show that you saw at Queen Elizabeth Theater in Vancouver last Wednesday? He's my favorite artist. I think when I first heard his music, something just clicked. And it was something about the darkness in his music. It was something about the introspection, a little bit of that storytelling. Um, And then, you know, as he's moved into this more abstract, uh, you know, lyrical phase of his music – God, there's so much to dig into there. It's such a, his music's such a cerebral experience. And I think that's what's kept me a longstanding fan of his. Well, we're going to get there, but yeah. I, just a few more questions before we start. So how many times have you seen him? I've seen him five times now. You've seen him five times? Yeah. Three with the Bad Seeds, once on a solo Q&A tour, and then this time most recently with Warren Ellis. So can you tell everyone how you discovered him, how the first time you heard him, and who exactly recommended Nick <laughs> Yeah, this is a little bit of a neat story. So, uh, well, Aaron and I, Aaron and I went to high school together, and we, uh, you know, we had some big musical fanaticism circles in high school. Uh, a lot of us into you know some really esoteric stuff, and uh, at the time, I was. Uh, steady listener of henry roland's radio show kcrw um i would listen to that weekly and loved it and i i noticed one time that i was in i think it was in grade 12 i was about 16 at the time and uh i noticed henry roland's email at the top of the web page so i wrote him an email saying hey henry i love the show uh, you play a lot of music from acts that are disbanded or dead and I can't see them. Can you recommend anybody who's touring now? And he wrote me back and said, go listen to Grinder Man. And this was awesome because one, Henry Rollins was replying to my email, but also what an awesome introduction to Nick Cave. So Henry Rollins for everybody, that's the founder and frontman, I believe, actually not the founder. He jumped not on after Greg Ginn. After, after Greg Ginn of Black Flag, who are the seminal hardcore DC act. Yeah. He's also been in the Rollins band. Is that right? Yep. yep. Of course. Sorry, I, I knew that. I knew that Henry Rollins is in the Rollins band. <laughs> uh, he's, he's in like Heat <laughs> and like Bad yeah. Boys 2. Like he's like, like played like cops. Yeah, Very he played cool. a cop or a security guard too in uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway. <laughs> yeah, he's like David Lynch, Michael Bay, and Michael Mann. <laughs> and he's been like, he does lots of stand up comedy now. That's sort of, I'm not a big hardcore guy, but I see him like, Tell the Iggy Pop story and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah, very respected person. If you write Henry Rollins an email and he goes, go listen to this, you better do it. You might not like it, but you're going <laughs> to do it. But that's 
I mean, like, let's let's not over let's not overstate this because we we can't really overstate this. Yeah, <laughs> recommended you your now favorite artist. Absolutely, and and what an introduction that Grinderman Two was. Like, I I immediately bought that record. Uh, you know, this was a recommendation I knew I could trust, and uh, <laughs> I uh, I put it on for the first time, and it blew my mind. That record is something else, um, and it just. It you know the intro starts off slow and then it just it just shocks you and it just sends you into this whole other orbit and uh, and it's yeah I've been a, a crazy Nick Cave fan since then. I mean that's awesome. Uh, I mean like like my dad showed me Earth Wind and Fire. I think that's the closest thing. To like, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Recommendation I got right. Yeah. His dad didn't show them Earth Wind and Fire. Uh, <laughs> So before we actually get to his early career and this and that, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of you seeing your favorite artist for the fifth time, did it wear <laughs> off at all, or you you were all in? I'm I'm still buzzing from it, man. It was uh, I guess it was about four days ago. Wednesday night. Wednesday night. Wednesday yeah. night. Wow. Today's Sunday. And I'm still on a high from it. How come? Like it was was because it, it was that good, or because you were so close to your favorite artist, like within like 20 feet of this guy or what, what about the concert is really stuck with you after the weekend? You know, I think the biggest thing for me was hearing some of these new songs live and just experiencing Mm -hmm. them, you know, having seen them five times, I've heard, you know, some of the same, you know, classics a a few times now. Um, But this is all new material or mostly new material that he hasn't had a chance to tour yet. And so, you know, what an experience hearing that for the first time, hearing the way they've transformed it on stage. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get more into that later on. But that for me is, you know, so freaking cool. Yeah, it's 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 one thing to see an, a legacy artist just come out and they do their new songs. and You're like, all right, get to the <laughs> go see the strokes. And it's yeah. like, is this on? Is this in a room on fire? OK, I'm getting a T-shirt and a beer. <laughs> you know what I Pretty mean? much. Even Julian Casablancas is like, thank you everyone for putting up with, the, with these new songs. <laughs> uh, Nick Cave, different story. Yeah, right? it's it's like new new material, old material is all strong. So the old stuff almost feels like a treat, I would imagine. And this new stuff, you actually that's the reason you're going. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so I was looking into his early stuff because you know you hear things like the most violent band in England. You hear things like one band war and i'm like okay like, and I, I, I just for everyone that hasn't realized yet i'm a rookie when it comes to this guy he's just been a blind spot of mine and for everyone who's listened to every episode of the podcast we will be talking about artists that i know very intimately as well <laughs> I, I mean i had to take this opportunity because we have the absolute nick cave stand here right in right in front of us right in front of my computer screen actually oh yeah uh, we are recording remotely <laughs> but I, I had to check this out like the most violent band in england what the hell what are the sex pistols <laughs> like like what's joy division so like i watched videos and i'm like oh i i get it i get it like he's shrieking he's throwing himself around the stage there's this fucking pounding rock music and guitar music behind him it's like seeing satan's cousin and there's a pole i think a scaffolding <laughs> yeah really jumps on it and does a pole dance I'm like oh <laughs> this is like today Today this would be crazy. Yeah, nineteen eighty two. So I'm kind of like, it's like I don't know. He didn't. Set, I I could see why it would set everyone's world on fire. Um, did you get any of that on uh, on Wednesday? Was he was he doing like was he like 
<laughs> throwing himself around the stage? Or has he kind of? I believe he's evolved as a live performer. It's he's he's chilled out. Would you say or changed his moves? So with this new material, you know, a lot of it is uh, slower, uh, much more ambient. Um, and there wasn't drums on many of the tracks, so it doesn't really lend itself to, you know, that chaotic performance style. Um, however, there there were you know a handful of songs that he played that were heavy, and and he did get into it. He was you know throwing himself around. He was pointing at the crowd like an assault. Uh, he was uh, you know at one point he did just you know. F- fall to his knees and raise his hands to the air as if he was, you know, saw the face of God. Um, so yeah, he, he definitely got into it still a little bit. He's, he's got those, you know, rock God tendencies still rock God tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that probably leads into a good transition into the nineties when he pretty much becomes a rock God, right? Is that, would that be the era of like the turning point kind of like the Beatles going from, early Beatles to rubber soul into Sergeant Peppers is the nineties, like the big decade for Nick cave in a way, the first big decade. Absolutely. And, and it came as a few ways. I mean, he, a couple things started happening in the nineties. He started booking bigger tours, festival tours, like, you know, Lollapalooza tour and stuff like that. Um, but on top of that, he started getting attention from MTV and right. And so, you know, all of this elevated him, his audience, his mystique, um, you know, all of that was growing at the time, and t- on top of it all, you know, the quality of his music was as consistent as ever. So, so you yeah. say he's getting he got attention from MTV. I'd imagine things like 120 Minutes, which was the big alternative program, was probably putting his videos in rotation, late night type thing. Mm-hmm. Have you seen all of his music videos or all the big ones? Yeah, yeah. What? Wh- how would you define his music video aesthetic? Usually performance based. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever seen like narrative. Yeah, there's not many of those. There's a couple of those, but there's usually a performance involved. He's usually singing. Um yeah, so they're pretty pretty straightforward. They you know, a lot of them build a mood or a feel around the performance. Some of them are really funny. Like if you watch the music video for the song Straight to You, apparently the band was, you know, performing on this stupid stage and they hated it so they got progressively more drunk throughout the uh filming of the video and by the end they're just wasted um what's another good one uh yeah i mean i mean there's there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff that they do within the confines of a performance music video so just let the band play put like five cameras set up, make sure you catch some cool shots, put it in black and white type thing. Yes. But that reminds me of, uh, he had this one music video in I think 2003 or 2004, it came out for a song called bring it on. Mm. And, uh, that was in the era where, you know, all those rappers were doing those like more lewd style videos, dancers, just kind of, you know, doing their thing. The bling era. The bling era. The bling bling era. Exactly. And so he was like, well, fuck it. Why can't I do that too? And so he's got this like, he's, it's, you know, the band performing, but around them are all these dancers and shit shaking their asses. Yeah. (laughs) What song is this? Just so people can go find it. It's called Bring It On. It's definitely worth a watch. Is it what album? Uh, It's off Nocturama. Okay, so like not that long ago. Yeah, 2003, 2004. Wow. So just like Nelly, Ludacris, and Nick Cave. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
I mean, you just took us right out of the 90s, and I, I would say that that's probably his resurgence is coming around 2005, 2006. Uh, yeah. Like he, starts, he, he, he starts Grinder Man, which is named after a blues song by Memphis Slims, and it's, uh, it's sort of the bad seeds have been disbanded at this point or dissolved? Not disbanded. They were on hiatus when they were doing mm-hmm. Grinder Man, and Grinder Man was just a smaller version of the bad seeds. So Got all it. the people in Grinder Man were members of the Bad Seeds. So it, it, Warren Ellis gets on board beforehand. Blixa leaves. Mick Harvey's getting edged out. This is like two thousand and what do you think? Two thousand four, I would 2004, say. Before all of this is happening, like a yeah. big transform transformative moment for this band. Yeah. Warren Ellis had been in the band before, but been in the band since uh, ninety four. Murder ballads. Uh, Murder ballads was ninety six, I believe. Yeah. That might have been that right around should that be when circa, he joined the town. Circa period, right? Yeah. Okay. So he had been in the band before, but not until Blixa left and, and and Mick Harvey was sort of his position was diminished. At that point, Warren Ellis is now putting a new level of experimentation into the bad seats. Uh, correct? Correct. Yeah. He's more or less John Cale for the Velvet Underground. Plug my viola in and just, you know. That's a like, good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, uh, Venus and Furs. You know, oh, yeah. Get, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, that's well, that's pretty dope. Uh, so then now we're now we're riding high with Warren Hell- Ellis up until today. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so something interesting happens there after they put out the Abattoir Blues and the Liar of Orpheus. They start touring that album, and there's suddenly 15 people on stage because of the gospel singers and everybody wow. else, and the band starts growing more. And uh, Nick Cave says this is awesome, but also fuck it. And I want to dial it back and do some garage rock shit. And, and that's when he forms grinder man. And he takes those three guys from the bad scenes, Warren, Martin and uh, Jim and says, let's go make some hairy rock and roll music. And, uh, and that's what they do. They make that record. Grinder yeah. man one. Yeah. Uh, they come back to the bad seeds. They make yeah. a record called dig Lazarus dig. I, that's a that's a big one. Yeah, that's I, like I love that one. I, you know, I'm not too sure how fans regard it, but I I love that record. It it's feels like awesome. a comeback, like Dig Lazarus. I, I think that was everywhere when like when the blogosphere was really still very much a part of our lives, and we were looking at blogs <laughs> to find music. They were all about that, right? Yeah, and then uh, and then and then they go off and make Grinder Man too, and they open for the White Stripes. Yeah, which is uh you know they're playing to like. 25,000 people. Madison every, Square Garden, right? Yeah, 18,000 very important New York people who are there. <laughs> the final tour of the White Stripes, they get Grinder Man. It sort of reaffirm, reaffirms, they're like, oh yeah, Nick Cave, this guy's been around since the 80s, but oh yeah, I forgot how fucking unbelievably sick and twisted and yeah. tight the band plays and like the, it, it, like the sort of like dark mountainscape, sonic mountainscape that this guy creates within these songs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, totally. Um, okay. So what do you think the strongest incarnation of the band is then? Because there's a lot of people moving in, moving out. There's a lot of like direction changes. You said that at one point they remove guitars. At one point they're not playing rock. They're playing these kind of uh, like jazz age, uh, like lounge ballads. For you, what is the like – what is the classic incarnation of this group? For me, the classic incarnation will always be – um, 
you know, where they were from the album's uh, Tender Prey, uh, and it's 1988. Or I, I mean, I guess it was the same lineup a little earlier, but um, mm. that 80s lineup uh, all the way to 95, 96. And so that line, those lineups were um, Blixa Bargeld on guitar and, and doing vocals. He did a couple duets and stuff. Wow. Didn't know that. Um, there was uh, Mick Harvey. He was still doing the arrangements. He was still playing a little bit of everything. Um, they had two different drummers that they would oscillate between. That was Jim Sclavinus and Thomas Wilder, both of them still in the band. Uh, Martin P. Casey, he was in the band at the time as well. And then, of course, Conway Savage, um, who played keys in the band, uh, rest in peace, Conway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, to, to me, you know, that core group was an extraordinary lineup and they had different people filtering out in and out too. Um, like kid Congo powers who was in the gun club. Uh, he played with the band for a few years, a couple other guys, but yeah, something about that lineup was just to me, the epitome of nineties rock and roll. Um, now, it's it's a really good question that you asked because I also happen to think that the current lineup of the Bad Seeds is phenomenal. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about Dig Lazarus Dig. We talked about Grinder Man 2. After that, they come back and they're kind of working in this current lineup of the Bad Seeds, which carried through from the albums Push the Sky Away, Skeleton Tree, all the way to Ghosting, which was their last album. And... Uh, you know, this incarnation is still the bad seeds doing what they do best, but really has Warren Ellis stepping up and shining in, in a writing and compositional and arranging standpoint. Um, he started working with loops more and more, uh, looping his guitars, looping his pedals, uh, sorry, looping, looping his violin right. and, uh, and flute. And, uh, and started playing more synthesizers as well. And this is where, you know, the music starts to get more abstract, more ambient, more out there and and it's awesome you know we were going to talk about warren ellis but you know i don't think there's a better time to talk about him than now <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, so, so you went to one of nick cave's concerts where he did a piano performance and then he did a q a nick cave very famous for having a very engaged relationship with his fans always willing to answer questions via email he runs the red hand files which is his virtual q a basically where fans get to send in questions and he answers them you read those right nate Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, he started doing that after his son passed, uh, you know, as a way to, I think, kind of channel a communal grief that everybody goes through when, you know, when they lose someone. And he started and he's always had a tumultuous relationship with the press, with right. journalists, especially uh, didn't doesn't necessarily like being interviewed. And so he figured, OK, well, if we can skip the middleman here, let's do it. And it gives him a, you know, a chance to exercise his writing. And he liked it so much that he thought, fuck it, I'll go on tour by myself and answer fan questions live. I can do that. And so he did. And, and so it was a really interesting tour. It was him, solo piano, bunch of fans on tables on stage, like, you know, set up as, as if they were at a restaurant. Whoa. Where, what, then, what venue was this? This was a really cool venue. So I saw him in the uh, British Columbia date, and he, he didn't play in Vancouver. He played at the Massey Theater in New West. What? Yeah, i have never been there. No, is that the casino? No, no. It was wow. connected to a high school. <laughs> it's connected to high school. Yeah. Insane. 
is really cool. You know that he didn't have to. They didn't charge him shit for that too. It's just like, yeah. oh, we're saving money here. <laughs> yeah, good draw. It was sold out. Um, Elvis Costello was in the crowd. What? And his wife Diana oh, Crawl. They have a place. They have a place in BC because of Diana Crawl. Wow. Yeah. You see him? Yeah. You can make out Elvis Costello in the crowd. Yeah, <laughs> he was a couple rows ahead of me. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but you got to ask him a question. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I, you know, I, I had been thinking of a question for a long time. I knew I wanted to ask him a question at this concert. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily want to write into the red hand files. I love reading that, but you know, really just wanted to get a chance to talk to him at this concert. And so, mm-hmm. uh, when the opportunity arose, I was handed a mic and, uh, I'd been thinking of a question for weeks prior and I came down to this as, cause it was something that as a fan, I really wanted to know myself. My question was, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, you know, he, I asked him that given that he's worked so closely with key collaborators throughout his career, first Roland Howard and the birthday party, and then Mick Harvey for years and years, Blixa Bargeld for years and now Warren, I asked him, given you know the stylistic, I guess, uh, mode that his music is in now, would that something would that be something that he could have created with past collaborators, or is this something that is just unique to Warren, and or unique to his collaboration with Warren? And it was awesome. He uh, he responded, you know, right away, saying, "Absolutely, this is only something that you know I could do with Warren." He said that in previous with previous collaborators, his music was very and then kind of mimed out like, you know, the ticking of beats, uh, you know, obviously everything's tight and calculated, wrapped and yeah, in time. And then he said with Warren, I'm out here and mimed himself floating in space. <laughs> wow. And that is what it's like. And, and it was awesome. It, it was such a good answer. Really left me, you know, knowing exactly what I wanted to know. And then he sat down and said, I'll, I'll play you one of our best collaborations. And he played the song Jubilee Street. That's and how the was, concert was? Like he'd answer a question and he'd be like – And then play a oh, song. <laughs> badass. Yeah. No, like who does that? That is badass. It, it was so cool. It wasn't like a concert and then a and a after. It was like a and a interspersed with songs. It was so cool. Oh, <laughs> Like that's like, like an SNL parody of a Frank Sinatra that they would do. Just like, all right, now here's the goddamn song. <laughs> uh, um, so on Ellis, so he, this is, I got a list of everything he does. It sounds like he's what Garth Hudson is in the Last Waltz. If you've seen the band's Last Waltz, just like playing accordions and saxophones, it's fun, almost yeah. funny. Or John Paul yeah. Jones, how John Paul Jones is like the multi instrumentalist glue in Led yeah. Zeppelin. So I, we have violin, piano. Accordion, <laughs> bazooki, guitar, flute, mandolin, mandocello, which is the yeah. first time I've ever read that word, said that word in my entire life. Didn't know – like like I'd imagine it's a mandolin and a cello. <laughs> uh, uh, tenor guitar, viola, background vocals, auto harp. He operates the drum machine and synthesizers, the mm-hmm. alto flute, the glockenspiel. The harmonium. <laughs> he uh, also manages the sequencers for loops, and then he does production and mixing on the record. Who taught this guy? Like, who trained this guy? Do you know? So he he came up in a band called the Dirty Three, which I can imagine not a lot of people have heard of. And if you haven't, you got to listen to this band. Mm. They 
in my opinion, are one of the best post-rock bands, and they Whoa. sound nothing like any of your quintessential post-rocks. They sound nothing like Godspeed. They sound nothing like Explosions in the Sky. Mm. There's something else, you know, made with just the the sweetest melodies, him leading on violin, a guitarist and drummer who, you know, both of them are out of this world. And, uh, and I think he kind of came up through that. I mean, he... I. I understand that he was kind of into drugs in the same way Nick was into drugs. And by drugs, we're talking heroin, not, not cocaine, real drugs, real drugs. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and then I, I don't know how, but I think, you know, he, he started playing with the bad seeds. And then as him and Nick started collaborating more and more, I think he kind of took up that torch of, producing and mixing but his main instruments a violin and everything kind of flows from that <laughs> just real cool and we're going to talk yeah. about what he did for the show um, yeah. just in a second here but i just wanted to read you something that i read that i thought was pretty interesting uh ellis's contributions to the bad seeds have defined their current sound mysterious atmospheric and loose his soundscapes provide an indelible backdrop to caves evolving language of sound song so hopefully you'll understand why carnage works so well that's his latest as a collaborative album without feeling like a side project it's welcomed with its heavier tracks that are louder than most of his recent trilogy and while it's dark as promised it's also beautiful and pristine with four ballads reigning in the back half you know that's beautiful it's beautiful. I don't know who wrote that, but it's beautiful. You wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why, like, like in 2020? I'm oh, <laughs> kidding. I knew, I knew that was me. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I was like, I was hoping you're like, like, God, that's the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> uh, I mean, you now you've experienced two years later, a pandemic to boot, and you went and saw this show. Mm-hmm. It's, has it reinforced that what you had to say about Ellis's contributions to the Bad Seeds plus Nick Cave solo tour. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You're a motherfucker. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. Go on. Give him those blind compliments. Um, yeah. No, he's uh, – the guy's a genius and it was so cool. Like, you know, we'll get into the show in a little bit, but mm-hmm. just seeing him surrounded by – you know, all his gear before the show started, I, I ran up to the stage just to get a peek of, you know, what amps he was using, what pedals he was using, what instruments they had set up around him. And it was, it was so cool. It was, you know, you don't see a lot of people in bands doing that kind of thing anymore. I mean, Johnny Greenwood is a great example yeah, of one. hundred percent. And a lot of people have, you know, the guitar player who will also play keys, but you know, they're not necessarily doing something to the music in a way that, you know, Warren Ellis is doing, you know, he, he's driving the sound with these asynchronous loops with these, you know, glassy and beautiful and evolving synthesizer tones. And then he'll just pick up his violin in the middle of the song and he'll bust out a sick violin solo. And, you know, it's a, it's, you know, he, he's a real musician's musician. I think mm. he's a, he's just got it all going on. Whereas Nick Cave is like your quintessential front man. He now has the perfect counterpart in Warren Ellis, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. That's awesome. I really, uh, I really, 
every show I hear about, I'm always just like, wish I went, even though I don't know any of the material. I just wish I had like a cool girlfriend. I was like, we're going to the cave, baby. <laughs> and I'd be like, fuck, yeah, sure we are. And I'd be like, oh, 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 you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to say, all right, I want to talk about movies because mm. uh, he's like all about cinema. And okay, so let's first talk about like needle drops. And okay, so this is this has got maybe an off tangent. Now nah, we got a bit of time here because this one's this one's running tight. Um, I love the Black Crows <laughs> like that. Oh yeah, oh they're fucking. I, I you don't you never hear people say that because they're just they're kind of a cheesy bar rock band. They fight on stage and you you're, you're, <laughs> you know this group right? Yeah, yeah. And they got like Chris Robinson who's like. Is up there with any R&B singer, I think. I just, I love his voice and I love how he moves on stage. But I was watching uh, – it came on my YouTube algorithm uh, behind the music, Black Crows. And they were talking about how the Black Crows were super anti-corporate, which is weird because all that music sounds like a freaking Jack Daniels beer commercial. <laughs> it sounds yeah. – it's really commercial and like populist appealist. But they said like Miller would sponsor the ZZ Top Tour, which they were opening for, and they would spend – 10 minutes of their half an hour set railing Miller and just say, really? yeah, just say, we're not sponsored by Miller. We're sponsored by the black crows. And then I started to realize, <laughs> I was like, Oh, is that why none of their music is used in television or movies? They're literally just to deny everybody. They think they're Zeppelin or something. Right. Mm. Whereas Nick cave is someone I would think with the high esteem he gets and the prestige value of his legacy and his music and all the academia surrounding him, uh, that he wouldn't get used in film or that he'd be like, no, no, this is just, this is just for me. Like, it's just going to be on tour and I don't like the press. So I don't like Hollywood, for example. Um, right. No, absolutely not. Like I'm <laughs> wrong. I, I have a list here of, of music that's, uh, that's been used in visual media and uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. What? That, like, <laughs> really Beautiful made, like, place scene. Uh, if anybody remembers that, it's in the seventh film. So, God, you best know scene in Harry Potter. A, a break from the listing us off just because Jared actually uh, wanted to include something here. He couldn't be here today, my partner Jared. But uh, I got him on the phone today just because he loves – he thinks that's that. He thinks that is one of the best uses of music in a film. And he, he I said, agree. He said to me, "I believe that Oh Children" is a song where Nick Cave sings to the next generation for the mistakes that his generation made, the Cold War, etc. Oh Children is that song, and the sentiment and the message of that song, that apology he's giving, is very applicable to the Deathly Hallows Part One, especially Harry Potter. Uh, since the heart of, of, of the song of the film is that children are having to pay for all the mistakes that these adults have made. Tom Riddle, the Ministry of Magic, Snape, Harry's dad, Lupin, Sirius. And you, you learn throughout the films that what the adults have done and the mistakes that they've made, that the new that this generation of characters, basically children, are the ones who have to take repercussions. And it's just before they're going to war and Harry and Hermione are slow dancing to it. That's beautiful. Wow, Jared, we're missing you today, buddy. <laughs> he'll be that's so, he'll that's be so on well spoken. Okay, you know, the three of us are going to get together on that OK Computer episode, and we'll make up for all of us. Oh yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you did you find that when you watched the movie, you were like, God damn, like Harry Potter, Dick Cave, whoa, hundred percent. It to me, it's the best scene in Harry Potter, not because I'm a massive Nick Cave fan, but because it's so fucking effective. It's as far as I know, it's the only licensed piece of non original music 
in the entire series. That's correct. I think I I'm almost positive that that's correct because otherwise it's John Williams. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's so incredibly effective. It's yeah. There's just something to that scene. It's so emotional. It's not you know. I mean that that whole movie was more like a road movie than a blockbuster. You know, Ooh. and uh, and just. You know, having them do something different and approach the series in a non-blockbuster way to have this piece of music, you know, ring so loud. It, it's it's fantastic. It really works. And just like aside from that, like dark magic. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if Nick Cave is writing spells right now. <laughs> and, and that's why that's why we're on this podcast right now. Uh, more films. OK. Dogs in right. Space. Batman mm. Forever. Shrek 2. Yeah, Shrek too. <laughs> People <laughs> the, ain't no good. Yeah, right. The X Files, Dumb and Dumber, The L Word, Californication, Nip Tuck, all television series. Ricky Gervais' Afterlife for Netflix. I am Sam. Mm. I believe he covered the Beatles for that. That was like sort of the motif of the album. Do you remember what he did? Did uh, uh, Here Comes the Sun? I think. In like, I don't a, know if that was on the soundtrack, but I listened to his that his like a cover bonus of that. track. Yeah, Nick Cave doing "Here Comes the Sun." Hey, more like "Here Comes the Bats." <laughs> <laughs> like, pick like or like I would like I want you. She's so heavy. I could see him doing that. You know what I mean? We're like, here comes yeah. the sun. Whoa. He um, also did "Let It Be," I believe, for that, that soundtrack. That, I mean, like, there's also a complete a lot of religious um, sort of undertones in a lot of his work, so I can totally see him doing the "Let It Be." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Freshman with Matthew Broderick and uh, Marlon Brando, About Time, Richard Curtis's film, True Detective and True Blood. We're getting yeah. into the Southern Gothic now, which is where he feels real comfortable. And of course, uh, 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 Red Right Hand, which is the theme song for Peaky Blinders. And I, I guess I think that's opened up a lot of people's eyes uh, because that's a hugely popular show in the UK. And they go and hear that. Yeah. And they go, oh, I'm really into this. Um, do you watch that show at all? No, I've never gotten a chance. It's been on my list forever. But that's, I guess, you have you ever seen like perhaps? Why do you why do you think that like a show about like, and this is a try, you weren't prepared for this, so no problem if you don't have hey if, if old gangsters in England, ruthless gangsters, bootlegging, I mean like m- moving swag and beating people up with clubs in the streets and just like chaos. Why does Red Right Hand work so well? in that context it's the perfect song for it because uh really it's the lyrics i mean there there is this kind of spooky feeling to it um it, you know it, it's kind of slow and trotting through the verses um it's got that big bell that they hit in the chorus that just sounds like something really sinister but it's it's those lyrics i think that's what it comes down to it's talking about this gentleman with a red right hand you know he's a murderous individual and uh and he's you know he's in town and he's gonna you know for lack of a better term fuck shit up and and to me that you know from what i've heard about peaky blinders it seems quite fitting well said it's 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 also the song that Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber <laughs> tricks the tricks the blind kid into buying his parrot his dead parakeet. <laughs> yeah. He's got the big cowboy hat on. He's like whistling. I'm like, oh, sinister and fucking up the town. It's like, <laughs> that's how why it's so applicable. It's actually you also used in every Scream film. Uh, Scream yep. one, Scream two, Scream three. So yeah, just mm-hmm. just the idea of sinister chaos and. <laughs> like yeah. it's hitting the fan is kind of what you think that song is about yeah and just you know someone's gonna die 
someone's gonna <laughs> yes i would like i yeah it, it, it's, it's not looking real good for us right now <laughs> <laughs> uh so 2000s he's making movies like he's he, he's he's so he, I mean, backtrack, he's in one of Roger Ebert's favorite films called Wings of Desire. Uh, one of my favorites as well. Right? Wim Wenders about Guardian Angels? is I, I was a blind spot for me. Tell me – give us, give yeah, us a minute, it. 30 seconds on uh, Wings of Desire, Nick Cave showing up in it. Why it's, why it's one of your favorite films too? Wings of Desire is a film about an angel and he's uh, you know slowly getting involved with this human. And, uh, and really it's about a pair of angels, but, um, but you see – you know this angel watching over this human and she's a you know woman working in a circus and she's a big fan of nick cave and so that you know that's how he ends up playing in a scene in, in the film him and the bad seeds and it's uh it's fantastic and it's effective and i think vim vendors was trying to paint a portrait of berlin at the time and this was when the bad seeds were living in berlin and uh you know they were a big part of that music scene. And so a big part of that sound, a big part of that, you know, the idea of Berlin in the late eighties. And so I think, I think that's why they were in the movie. I think that's why it was so effective to put them in the movie. It's a good flick. It's great. It's just, what is it beautiful and has big ideas or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, heavy themes and, and just like a, a really interesting story. I mean, I, I know there was that shitty TLC show touched by an angel that kind of had a, a similar thing, but this wow. is a really, you know, a really good art film depicting that type of concept. Wow. Very yeah. cool. Um, so he actually, he's a, like he's written movies. He wrote and made a Western called the proposition in 2005. Yeah. yeah so that, that's a, directed by a friend of his john hillcoat who's an australian director right and he's done a bunch of bad seeds videos and i think you know they've had a long-standing relationship and i think that's how uh hillcoat pulled nick cave into that film um he ended up writing the script because they wanted to write a western and it wasn't coming out as a distinctly australian thing and that's what they were going for but they kept coming out with these american western scripts that weren't really doing it and so Nick Cave got involved to write, you know, something more uh, Aust- inherently Australian. So he's made American Westerns, too, because he or he's been involved. He scored the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is a quintessentially Amer- American American uh, Western. He's done The Road and Lawless. I just want to make a sorry, please. Oh, sorry, no, no, please. sorry to interrupt. He makes a, uh, a small cameo in the cow- in the assassination of Jesse James by he's the in coward too, Robert Ford. And it's shot by Deacon. So, you know, it's going to look yeah. good. Yeah, he, he's in a bar scene and he's playing guitar, singing about the coward Rob Ford. To Rob Ford, he's in the bar. He, he a, must be just a director or a director of photography. Must see this guy and be like, "Damn, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. shoot you, buddy!" <laughs> like, uh, shoot me like one of your French girls. <laughs> like, I, I I wanted to ask you. So he's done Australian westerns. He's done American westerns. Mm-hmm. Australia really is a desert at the end of the day. But I wanted to ask you. Um, What's the what differentiates an Australian Western from an American Western? Do you think? That's a really good question. I think, I think American Westerns are imbued with a bit of American Southern culture. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's spaghetti westerns, which are you know a little bit different, um, but 
with American Westerns, especially like, you know, in literature and film, I, I think American culture starts to bubble out of that a bit. You start to see, you know, American lingo rising up, American ideals and values. And I think the Australian Western, at least when I saw the proposition, I, you know, the feeling I got from it was a much more desolate place, mm. you know? Like not as not as like, and like exactly. on and twirl my gun and like, let's save the town. Exactly. Because, I, I, you know, when you think about that time, that was like the America was like the land of opportunity. Yeah. I don't think people were saying the same thing about Australia. Ooh. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. Um, here's one that sh- sort of set my world on fire. It's uh, he, Nick Cave is really good friends with Russell Crowe. They're both Aussie boys. He wrote a script un- ended up being unused for a proposed <laughs> sequel to Gladiator. Yeah, Gladiator, Gladiator 2. Christ killer, you said it was There you called. go. <laughs> and obviously the studio read this probably two pages of it and went, ah, see you later. Like, yeah, this is the, not for us. Ruin the shredder, just be like, no Ridley Scott will save our ass <laughs> for this movie. You have the script? Uh, yeah, I downloaded a PDF of it. <laughs> which is awesome. Did you, did you did you end up like maybe like skimming through it when you had it? Yeah, yeah. It's I just pulled it up right now. It's uh looks like it's a uh, hundred three pages. And, Average uh, sounds about right. I've, I've skimmed through it a couple times. It's it pretty like? awesome. It's it's wild. It gets into like you know themes of like heaven and 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 immortality and God. You know, I I, I haven't read it in a little while, but. It's it's epic, man. It's so epic. It's, it's still Maximus because Maximus yeah. dies, right? He dies, goes to heaven, and gets sent back down. Oh, he's resurrected. Yeah. Did like? Do you remember Nick Cave writing like action set pieces in there, or was it like not even like an action movie? <laughs> uh, are there good gladiator- you know, I'm gonna have to reread it. Like, are, do you remember you there still being like gladiator fights in it? Yeah, big fights. But but not it's not centered around the gladiators anymore. It's centered around uh, the Romans, for the most part. They're set around the Romans. Yeah, because it has to do with obviously the death of Jesus Christ, and Ooh. and so so. Oh my yeah. God! So that's what he wrote about. Yeah, we gotta you gotta make this man like all the someone's got to make <laughs> all the streaming wars going on. Talk to Bezos. Talk to freaking what's his name at Netflix and just get this thing. <laughs> Five episode miniseries. Russell Crowe can make a cameo. It doesn't have to be him. We can get all. Apparently, they're making a Gladiator two off a different script, which is incredibly unfortunate. But for uh, you, but probably not for like the major amount of people who might who are going to be anticipating this movie. I'm gonna fair. I I I I just want to see it. I just want to see what the day. Also. This guy's writing books. This guy's writing scripts. This guy's writing mm-hmm. songs. This guy's writing liner notes. He's working on other stuff too, scores. And I read that he uses a typewriter because uh, rather than a, a computer where you can just literally click one button and delete it, uh, which yeah. he's afraid of always uh, ridding himself of all the good work that he might want to use just because of his own self-esteem sometimes. And like normal people would. So he uses a typewriter. I want to see Nick Cave type. <laughs> I, want, I, want him to, I want to see Nick Cave do all the right type <laughs> like the little, oh nice the program i remember that you, shit you move the boat yeah. and, you, and yeah. you go i don't know if anybody <laughs> not in canada knows what we're talking about but i bet you Nick typing games got, right the games i bet you he's got fucking fast fingers 
Yeah, you know, you see him type in um, he. You know, he starred in this semi-autobiographical docudrama called uh, 20,000 Days on Earth, mm. and it came out shortly after the album Push the Sky Away. Um, and you see him typing that. It's it's uh, His office looks freaking awesome. Like old? Old and like cluttered with just, you know, pictures and images for inspiration all over the walls and upright piano that looks, you know, beaten to shit. It's, it's pretty cool. Ugh. Uh, okay, let's take a break, and then we'll be right back to talk about the show. Sounds good. Okay. All right, we're back. Let's uh, okay. Let's talk about the show. Uh, you know, normally we do a little analysis and maybe talk a bit about his new album, Carnage. Maybe Ghosting. Fuck it, though. Screw it. Let's just talk <laughs> about. Let's start with the set list. Let's give the people what they want. This is what's gonna happen. All right. I'm gonna name. I'm gonna read the set list out, mm-hmm. and you're gonna tell me. The album or project each song was on. Can you, are you confident that you could do that? Oh, yeah, blindly. Yeah. Spinning song, opener. Uh, first song off Ghostine. Bright Horses. Second song off Ghostine. Night Raid. I did, so it's on off Ghostine. <laughs> Carnage. That's off Carnage. White Elephant. That's Carnage as well. Ghostine's off Ghostine, I'm assuming. Yeah. It's not like Houses of the Holy. <laughs> uh, Lavender Fields. That's off Carnage. Waiting for You. That's off Ghosting. A lot of Ghosting and Carnage going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. I Need You. I Need You is off of Skeleton Tree. Ooh, uh, the first one not on yeah. Ghosting or Carnage. Cosmic Dancer. Can I do this one? Please do. Electric Warrior by T-Rex. <laughs> My man. <laughs> God is in the house. Uh, God is in the house is off of And No More Shall We Part. Hand of God. That's off of Carnage. Shattered Ground. That's off of Carnage. <laughs> Galleon Ship. That's off Ghosting. Leviathan. That's off Ghosting. Balcony Man. That's off Carnage. Now we're in the Encore. Hollywood. Ghosting. Henry Lee. Murder Ballads. Girl in Amber. Skeleton Dream. Into My Arms. That's off of the Bowman's Call. Uh, Ghosting Speaks. That's off of Ghosting. Did I miss anything? No. No. Killed it. Just off the bat, a lot of Ghosting, a lot of Carnage. He was really really hungry to play that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. How'd that go? Wait. So a little note on that. Um, He put out Ghosting and and then went on that solo Q&A tour. And so – he did a solo tour without playing that material and was going to do a tour in 2020 to debut it all with the bad seeds. And that's when the pandemic hit that got, mm. all got canceled. Right. So this was kind of the debut of Ghostine, as well as the carnage material, which is, you know, the album between him and Warren Ellis that he put out, uh, you know, during the pandemic. Um, Ghostine is a really interesting album because, you know, Skeleton Tree was put out after his son died, but most of it was written and half of it was recorded prior to his son's passing. Um, and it's a really grief-stricken record. Ghosting is a beautiful record that followed it up in the way that it actually kind of follows him processing that grief in a really non-narrative, abstract, introspectual, introspecting, lyrical manner. And uh, and And so to me, that's this incredibly beautiful album in his discography and i've I've been waiting so long to hear it live um and then the carnage material you know if you read my review on smack you'll know that i thought it was 
fucking awesome. And I've been stoked to hear that live too. And so for me as a general Nick Cave fan hearing, you know, these two albums largely, um, was super, super exciting. And, uh, you know, I, there wasn't for me, a, and happy to talk about this more, but there wasn't a point where I ever felt, oh, I wish he was playing more of the older songs. It, it, it was so exciting to hear this new stuff. Right. You were you were as hungry as he was almost. Yeah. I mean, like, I wonder if you get disappointed that he, and you just mentioned this, or not you, but people in the audience. We're also going to talk about it a bit more in a second here. Uh, uh, if they were disappointed that he's not playing the Mercy Seat, that he's not playing Red Right Hand or his like omni famous songs, do you like? Do they feel like they got ripped off? Or you know, we're not. I we're hope they wouldn't. Like well, I hope they wouldn't feel that way for a couple reasons. The first is it's it's not a bad seeds tour, and so right, to right. expect that he's playing songs like that, which are so dependent on the heaviness and the thunderstorm that is the bad seeds. I mean. You know, you should kind of know what you're walking into. It's, it's, you don't have that band there. And it's, you know, if you heard a version of it, it probably wouldn't be the same as hearing it being played by the Bad Seeds. The other thing is, it's, uh, you know, it, it, he's kind of set the tone now that, like, he, he's making a lot of music, you know, that doesn't have drums and is, you know, more string and ballad based. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, there probably are some fans who are going thinking, you know, he might play some stuff from his first album from her to eternity. But I think most people know, you know, it's pretty obvious. Oh, he put out a couple albums like that. His show is probably going to correspond with that kind of sound. And anyways, he does play a couple classics. You got Henry Lee on there. Was there, mm-hmm. was there any more that you could call like the quintessential pre 2010 Nick cave looking at the set list right now? Um, for me, God is in the house is is a big one that I personally love. I I don't know if a lot of fans like that song, but fuck, I love it. And his performance of it is always so good. I've seen him play it twice now, and right. uh, and and that's a great one. But it is you know more of a ballad. That's not a heavy song at all. No guitar. I looked at the band lineup, and like you know maybe Warren Ellis picks it up. Not even right. Not not for this show. No guitar, and like no guitar. wasn't the greatest rock band rock lead singers of all time what how does that work how does that work well so you know the the interesting thing is after mick harvey left the band on push the skyway they they decided they weren't gonna get another guitarist and so on push the skyway there's not much if any guitar and um and they kind of said hey this is working we don't need a guitar driving things right now and they ended up bringing another guitarist into the band um but you know, it's really dialed back and it's not, you know, not the originating compositional piece of the songs. The compositions are really coming from Nick at the piano and Warren doing his loops and doing his, you know, obscure instruments and, and making interesting sounds. Now a lot of synthesizer as well. Um, so, you know, you mentioned there is no guitar. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the band lineup was on stage. Please, um, please do. We had Nick, and he's playing piano uh, occasionally, other times just singing. Uh, Warren Ellis was so cool. He had a you know a nice brown leather chair that he was sitting on <laughs> most of the hit, and, uh, and he had two massive pedal boards surrounded by three amps, um, and he was, for the most part, playing synthesizers. He played a little bit of violin as well. Um, 
he didn't seem to play his tenor guitar, which is something that I've seen him play live, play live a lot now. Um, so yeah, it was mostly synths, a little bit of violin. And then they had a third member of the band who oscillated between drums, bass, and keys. Um, but, you know, even though he was playing more instruments, Warren Ellis was still obviously the more impressive multi-instrumentalist on stage. Mm. Um, but shout out to that guy because he, he killed it. And then three gospel singers. And they, and, they, were, and they were phenomenal. Some, I, I saw your videos, by the way. You took great shots, man, from that iPhone. Thank you. And, and I was you, row four, so uh, it came with territory. You didn't, and you were a bit sick too. Not COVID, and you. Not COVID. That was the only thing stopping you from getting right to the front because you love this guy so much. You were like, I don't want to get him sick. Exactly. I took. Uh, I ended up taking three COVID tests, and uh, the third one was the morning of the show, and I was negative the whole time. I think I just got a cold that was going around, but right, um, and everyone's got masks on, anyways, right. Yeah, I, I stayed masked the whole time, and uh, yeah, I normally I would rush to the stage. That's what I do at his shows. Um, but I figured, okay, I'll I'll, I'll set back, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to touch the guy and get him infected. That would really fucking screw up the tour. So uh, I, I stayed back, and I, it's it's funny. The second time I saw him was the exact same scenario where I was like, ah, I want to go up front, but I'm sick, so I shouldn't. I had a fever that time. I think that was 2015. His, his music kind of sounds like a common cold. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, I gotta go back to bed. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, <laughs> you're not wrong. Uh, so, anybody wants, if anybody wants to check that out, come go visit us at, at Smack Media on our Instagram, and I have a bubble archive bubble up there with all of Nate's videos. But um, yeah, you caught one video of I think they let the the gospel singers take the lead for for one song, or was that is that true? Yeah, so that that was for Henry Lee, which is a duet that he did on Murder Ballads with PJ Harvey. Oh, yeah, and he, he does one with Kylie Minogue too, right? Yeah, where the wild roses grow. Same album. Same album. Damn, Nick Cave, you dog! <laughs> you, yeah, the two love ballads on the same record, but he um he doesn't play that one. He plays he plays the PJ Harvey one. How how how'd she do? Was it good? She was phenomenal. It was so good. She killed it, uh, this singer, and um, and it was just so cool to hear that song live. That's one that I a classic that I'd never heard him play live. So super awesome to see. What was the best song of the night? <sighs> For me, it was Bright Horses. For my date, it was Balcony Man. Ooh, you had a date. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't even know that. <laughs> Talk about this for fucking weeks. <laughs> date? Okay. Well, that's <laughs> good for you, sir. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> but, so why? Why? Uh, why? Bright horses? Why was that the best track? And then the second song he plays all night. Right. So, uh, second song he plays all night. I, I always thought that song stood out off ghosting the first time i heard it the second time i heard it and even when i was listening to it earlier today um to me that's such a great standout track something about it just clicked for me i i feel like i have a real strong connection to that song um so for me it was in, like really emotional to see him play it live uh i've been wanting here live forever there's no you know live performance vids of it or anything so that was just super rewarding and you know i, I love the song so much just to dive into the mechanics of the song for a second um mm -hmm. because of the lyrics and and the way he writes it it's so 
it's so beautifully written. The first verse is talking about this, you know, this magical scene of these horses and their manes are full of fire and they're, they're, you know, lighting up the city, these magical horses. Um, and then the second verse undercuts it completely in just the most pessimistic way. Horses are just horses. Their manes aren't full of fire. Um, you know, and there ain't no Lord. So, you know, words like that that are just hopeless and sad. And then the song just switches to this outro that's, you know, different timing, different melody. Um, and he just sings, you know, my baby's coming home now. And it's like the it's like the clouds opening up so that the sun can shine through. Mm. It, it's a remarkable song. It's an amazing feat lyrically. And, and I was so happy to see that live. Now, so something happens quite crucially that we kind of touched on, and it changes his music. And his son, he has mm. two twin sons, and one of his sons falls to his tragic death at the age of 15. Yeah. And this com- completely changes the the course, the sonic course of his music. He pulled guitars. Right. It becomes very ambient, kind of looking for someone that he doesn't know is there or not. Um, and – that's ghosting, right? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his son passed away as he was partway through the recording of Skeleton Tree. Okay. And so that record was already written and half recorded. And and it does sound like, you know, the Skeleton Tree as a sound, it sounds like grief when it hits you right away. And that sinking black hole in the chest, that's what that record sounds like. But ghosting written you know later as he was processing the grief after he had started writing directly to fans and hearing about how they process grief and how they you know how they've lost people and and how they've moved on or how they haven't moved on and having that direct contact with fans in this sort of pseudo grief community um you know he ended up putting out this record called ghosting and it's just this amazing document of what i think is the processing of grief in a really beautiful way um, you know, it's it's very abstract. It's very introspective. Uh, lyrically, he's done with the narrative songwriting that he used to do. Uh, you know, telling stories. Now it's it's this kind of postmodern style of lyrics, and it's beautiful. Um, such a phenomenal record, and such an amazing you know beautiful document of him moving through that grieving process. And he's playing the songs on tour right now, right? Yeah, so rewarding to see that live for the first time. As someone who who really enjoyed that record, uh, and you know, not just because I'm a blind Nick Cave fan, I, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was so cool to listen to this record, and suddenly there were no drums on it. What, mm. you know? Um, it's yeah, it's a remarkable record, and it's really an, another you know reinvention of of his. Very cool. Um, yeah. Okay, you get to remove one song and add two. <laughs> You get to mm. you get to remove one song off the set list, and then you get to throw on two. What are you doing? Ooh. Or like, let's just say Nick Cave is there, and he goes, "Hey, I remember you. <laughs> I remember you from- <laughs> with Elvis Costello." And he passes you a paper airplane set list, and he goes, "What are we doing here, Nate? <laughs> I got room for one more, so you get to remove one and add two. What's it gonna be?" Gotcha. Okay, so. Uh, one of those that I'm going to add is one of my favorite Nick Cave songs, Total Sleeper. Not a lot of people know it. It's called Lucy. What album? 
That's off of The Good Son. Very cool. Okay. Uh, 1990. And and Lucy, you know, th- that one really stands out to me. Um, it's a beautiful ballad. And this was when he wasn't making many ballads. So, I, you know, I, I thought that was interesting because um, it showed that evolution that he was going to take later on. But the outro to the song is this beautiful, almost ambient, abstract, just instrumental outro. Um it, it's harmonica and strings and piano and they're all just kind of twinkling away like a night sky it's it's gorgeous and to me that really fits with the ambient sound that he has now so i think i think that would have fit really well in the set list mm-hmm. that would be a good number one okay um now i'm trying to think because i don't want to put the heavy songs in as well uh <laughs> it wouldn't be as as uh fitting um Let's take a look here. I think <sighs> Oh, here we go. I, and I, I knew he was playing this at, at other dates. I really hoped he would have played it. Uh, he didn't, unfortunately. Um, the one I really wanted to hear was Breathless, which is off of The Liar of Orpheus um, the, from the double album Avatar Blues and the Liar of Orpheus. And it is ostensibly the most upbeat song, I think, in his catalog. Wow. Like up tempo yeah. or like happiest? Happiest. Wow. And like, yeah. And, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's wild. And he played it on other dates. So I was really hoping they would. And when I saw Warren Ellis's flute, I was like, oh shit, it's going down. They didn't end up playing it. <laughs> Can you remove one? Is that a thing, or is that like cutting off a limb? Let's see. You know, it's kind of easy to remove some of the uh, some of the ghosting songs. Like, uh, no, you know what? It's it's more like cutting off a limb. <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, you know, a lot of these songs have the same feel or the same vibe, so maybe you know you could go without one, but. Honestly, as a fan, it was such a pleasure to hear those live. Can you live without Cosmic Dancer? Man, it was fucking cool to hear him cover T-Rex. Aaron and I both have been, you know, listening to a ton of T-Rex lately. And so, uh, you know... I think we were both excited to see that in the set list. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I, I got the footage and it looked really cool. There was no drums. There was that. That Cosmic Dancer has like really great vo- like strings too. And uh, yeah, uh, I always wait for the strings in the third verse. I think he goes, "I was dancing when I was twelve. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, "Is it that part? No, no, no. Oh, they hit. They hit." <laughs> And and it was funny too. His introduction to the song was, uh, "All right, everybody, now Warren Ellis is going to play the violin," and I'm, I'm like, "It's going to play the violin for like the whole song." And he's like, "In the third verse, it's going to play a violin solo in the third verse. Listen up." And then he starts playing it. Oh. And uh, yeah, you you can see in the video that I posted to the Smack Instagram, but um, they had the lighting on Nick playing the piano the whole time. And then it just slowly shifts to Warren when he plays the solo and he, you know, he's kicking his feet up in the air and it's, it's sparse and it's beautiful. Oh my God. Uh, so he's funny. Nick Cage yeah. is a funny dude. <laughs> Super funny. Well, well, this was, so this was arguably like the, the wittiest or funniest I'd ever seen him live. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, so happy to be playing and, and having a great time. What was he saying? 
Like, what were some of the things that that he kept uh, bringing up? Uh, you know, one really funny thing that would happen was uh, he'd be, you know, setting up to play a piano ballad and obviously a super slow song. And and he'd be like looking over at Warren. He'd be like, what? No counting. And so Warren would go like one, two, <laughs> like obviously they're just like to talking with the tempo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so like shit like that was really funny. Um, you know, his interactions with the crowd were really funny. Uh, he, you know, had a few interactions with the crowd. Uh, there was this one dude in the front row who was sporting like classic Nick Cave early 80s hair when it was just like this kind of crow's nest. And so he, he like looks over at him and he's like, man, you got really fucking awesome hair. Don't let it go. <laughs> I, I so, would imagine if that dude was like, and you have awesome hair plugs. <laughs> um what else he so he was playing the song called hand of god right before he starts the song it's it was one of the heavier songs that he played that night okay um he uh went over to some dude in the in the front row and said raise your hand up high and so the guy does and he's raising his fist up to the sky and Nick's like, no, not that high. <laughs> like halfway. <laughs> and so the guy drops his hand and he's like, okay, that's good. That's good. And then he starts pointing at the guy and starts saying, repeating, hand of God, hand of God, because that's the reef. That's like the repeating sample throughout the entire song. Got it's it. Repeating over and over again. Yeah. And, um, and so then he launches into the song, but every time he starts doing that refrain of repeating the words hand of God, he goes back to the same guy and starts pointing at him and just like, you know, like in that kind of assaultive way, like just repeating just to this one guy. And, uh, and it was hilarious. But then the funny part was like in other songs, he would start doing it again. So he would be playing a, a ballad like shattered ground and, you know, that song has a couple repeating words like goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. He repeats that in the song. And then he'd walk over to the same guy and do hand of God, hand of God, like again. And the guy would just raise his fist back up. It was, it was fucking That's hilarious. awesome. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Um, anything else? Yeah. He, he would, uh, there was a couple songs where, uh, he, like, I think it was Galleon Ship. He prefaced it by saying, uh, this is a beautiful song, but you guys haven't realized it yet because we haven't played it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then for uh, Leviathan, he was like, all right, guys, this song's incredibly complex, but uh, it just sounds simple. But it's really an incredibly complex song. And that song's got one lyric that just repeats over. I love my baby and my baby loves me. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> so, but you, you know, I want to see like a, a Nick Cave uh, MGM Grand 30 Night Stand. And he just sits <laughs> jokes. He gets, to be, he gets to be Frank Sinatra for a month. I feel like that would like, be hilarious. Martin, he's like a, the Rat Pack, you know. <laughs> we call the he does kind of have like pack. a bit of that flair. He does, right? Lately, the suits, yeah, like suits. lately. Well, the suits, yeah. I mean, the suits are fucking beautiful. Like they've got to be like four thousand dollars suits. He had a maybe. nice suit on that night. Real nice suit, and he does this thing that I've noticed where he uh, he has him real tapered in the thigh, and then like kind of widens at the knee. So it kind of it's almost like a bell bottom, but not yeah. that, like excessive. It's it's really interesting. What a cool looking dude! <laughs> yeah, and, seriously. And we mentioned hair plugs before, but I'm not making fun of him because because you know what I mean. Like like because 
imagine if he just <laughs> got the receiver or or had to go bald. The hair is like everything. It make it turns him into it's Count true. Dracula, right? It really does. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're gonna get to the categories, um, but I wanted to ask just before we do that: was there anything else? Because I know you had a lot of notes in the set list. Did we miss anything in the set list notes? Mm. Anything you want to mention? Just lastly, before we start to give the last awards and then say goodbye. Yeah, let's see. Um, so, uh, God is in the house. Every time he plays it, he does this really cool thing where, you know, in the song, the lyrics talk about going, we're as quiet as a mouse. You know, that's one of the lyrics in the song. And he always does it by going really quiet when he plays it to the point where he's just whispering. And, and, uh, cause he, you know, in the lyrics of the song, they talk about whispering and quietly shouting and, and that kind of thing. And so that's always really cool to see. And that's part of why I love seeing that song live again. Right. It's just because he he toys with the dynamics in an almost like satirical way. It's it's really funny and and, and cool too. I love when performers get really quiet on stage and everybody just has to shut up and listen. Um, there was another song that uh, had a really cool ending. The song Hollywood. Um, Hollywood's like a maybe a nine minute jam off of ghosting and it's it's long and it's a really meandering song but with this beautiful um buddhist parable like in the middle of it and uh and so they had a really cool outro where they just did this noise jam and and everybody was just going kind of crazy for a minute as if it was like a bad seed show Mm. that was really cool um obviously yeah we talked about henry lead how cool that was because it was so cool. And uh, one of the things that I really loved this time around was when he played I Need You. Um, just to backtrack a bit, I Need You is a song off Skeleton Tree, and it kind of lends itself perfectly to their lineup, which was a bunch of gospel singers, because it has all these swelling vocals in the background. And they were doing that throughout all the Ghostine songs and all the Carnage songs. And I thought, oh, when he plays I Need You... You know, he's playing I Need You. They're probably going to do that, too. But instead, it was strictly solo piano. And it took this beautiful kind of haunting ballad, um, you know, this yearning ballad. And by making it more sparse, it just hits so much harder. It was so much more effective. And and I, I really like that because I didn't think they were going to, you know, they had the tools on stage to make it sound almost exactly like the record. And instead, he played this this subdued version of it. And that was really cool. Cool, man. Uh, yeah, it's a great show. Then you gave it an A plus. I did. <laughs> uh, we're gonna let's let's give him some more awards then in these categories. We're gonna do the categories. I, I yeah, love let's it. Let's go right into it. Um, <laughs> let's start with the bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's 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 rank them on let's rate them on the Canadian audience meter just out of one to ten. How is the crowd? I know that Canada has probably it's probably the least favorite place for a lot of people to play versus South America or Japan, where crowds are respectful and engaged and not on their phones and they listen and they sing back. Uh, you mm-hmm. had some problems with the audience, didn't you? <laughs> didn't you, Mister Nate? <laughs> yeah, there were some annoying hecklers. Uh, hecklers. You know who would. Well, I guess not hecklers. Like, they weren't insulting him, but they were just yelling dumb shit mm. in the middle, of, in between songs. And, and you know, 
you know, it's one thing to be like, yeah, we love you. You know, even he got tired of the we love yous and he was joking and saying like, for the last time, I love you too. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but then there was just weird guys who would say um, like just really random stuff. Like he was about to play a song and then someone yells out, what about David Bowie? Like, what about David Bowie? And how is that relevant to anything that's going on in this concert? I love <laughs> David Bowie, but it, ma'am, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and and there were people doing that like multiple times, different <sighs> people saying just weird shit. And, and so that was kind of weird. But what I do know about Nick Cave and the thing that made this just a little less cringy is that he kind of regards his performances and as an interaction with him between him and the few front rows because that's all he can really see right? right and and so uh you know as far as that front row audience goes they were fantastic but we've got to use the Canadian audience meter which means we've got to take the crowd one to ten in total as they come yeah and uh I'm gonna give it a six mm, that's fair yeah. so they didn't yeah. fail but they, yeah. It was interfering with the show, and you were kind of like at time, like you don't want to ever be at the show and then hear someone yell something stupid just because they want to be picked up on a video or laughed at, yeah. and, and you just kind of like get like your face changes and you look back, you're like, shut up, <laughs> like, yeah. like what are you doing? Exactly. Like, what do you think you're doing? Like you're not friends with the band just because you're at their concert. Like, <laughs> what else did they say? So we have Bowie. We said, how about David Bowie? Was there anything else? Yeah, there was this weird guy who was like. Um, and I, I had no idea what he was trying to say, and I don't think the band did either. Uh, he was just, you guys got to keep doing these experiments. They're so cool, man. And like, oh, a critic. Like, it was like, what, what experiments are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, like this ain't Dragon's Den. I didn't yeah. ask for your advice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Exactly. Exactly. On, uh, on uh, stage dives, which is uh, a very, I think that was a deserved. Deserving six out of ten. Too bad, eh? You you you'd think yeah. it'd be a bit more. And it, you know, I had high hopes too because when I saw the crowd, it was like every Nick Cave concert I'd been to, where I'm seeing people, you know, younger than me, all the way to people in their seventies. Wow! And it's not just like the token guy in his seventies. It's like, yeah, he's got a lot of older fans his own age, you know. And and so you know, I was hoping like it was just a bunch of really devoted fans as it usually is and we just had a couple loose cannons here any practical effects during the show the lighting was fantastic mm. um smoke machines no smoke machines wow that shock uh, this i'd imagine a little smoke yeah no there was uh it was just this really cool i mean they had kind of like a rainbow shape uh, structure of lighting, but then they had these six massive lights at, at the back of the stage, these really big lights, and the way they use those, um, you know, shining on Nick during certain parts, shining on Warren during his big stand-up parts, that was really cool. Um, yeah, I thought they did a really good job with that. Um, colored lights, or any, any like, or the big white light, or how was that? No, they were like... Colored lights changing from like blue to red to purple. I would argue that Warren Ellis's instrument switches would is it were kind of like a practical effect. True. <laughs> yeah. And it, I actually I did want to say this because it was hilarious. Yeah. During Galleon Ship, Warren would hit like three sparse chords on the keyboard and then he would have like a rest and he would just raise his two hands up in a peace sign 
to the world, like a peace and love yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And it just set the crowd on fire. People were like laughing up a storm because it was so funny the way he was doing it. Just this like drunken grin on his face and <laughs> peace signs up in the air. And he did it over and over again. It was awesome. Is he Australian too? Or did they coach yeah. him from somewhere? Yeah. Wow. Super cool. Um, yeah. uh, best, you get to take something home. Anything from the concert. It could be like an outfit, something actually at the merch table. You can get creative with it. Mm. You get to take anything um, home. What is it? I, you know, he was throwing his lyrics on the ground at the end of the songs, and it would have been cool to have. So he he some he lyrics. brings he brings his lyrics as kind of notes that he works off of during songs. Yeah, I guess so. You know, it never looks like he's reading off of the lyrics, but um, but yeah, they're there. I think. Yeah, there for him to glance on, but you know, he seems like he has the songs pretty well memorized. You never, never feel like you never see that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he got it from his dad, who was a professor, right? Who was obviously working off of lecterns of notes, and mm. I, I wonder if, it, like, yeah, it, it feels like something that Leonard Cohen or like one of the show, like the swing guys would do. They'd like, all right, what do we got here, boys? Uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very cool. Uh, no opening act. Who would? No opening act. That was really cool. Who would open? I mean, yeah, I was sorry. I, mean, uh, I, I more so meant that as a rhetorical, but actually, that's a pretty damn good question. <laughs> who who's, who's who would open? Yeah, but so the last time I saw him in the Bad Seeds, there was no opener, and then when I saw him on the solo tour, there was no opener. But for the first two times I saw him, one opener was Mark Lanigan. And the other opener was Sharon Van Eden. That's sick. Sharon Those Van were really Eden cool. Opens for him. Yeah. Wow, that's a wicked double bill. Yeah, she's on yeah. the episode and lineup. We got we got a couple going to her show in uh, August. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's sick. Her opening acts are Angel Olsen and uh, <laughs> Julian Baker. Oh shit! Yeah, nice. they come into Vancouver or what? I bet you. Uh, I, I to be fair, I think Angel Olsen and her are double billing. Um, oh, that's awesome! You've seen him four other times. Was this the best one? Oh man, they're all so different, and, and it's hard to compare this to a bad seed show because again, the bad seeds are like a force to be reckoned with. Mm. Um, but you know, I, I can't say this was any worse than the others you know it's it's right up there with all those other times right uh anything anything else to add uh let's uh before we close it off here just uh advice for people that don't know his music and that stayed here for the entire hour and a half people that are loving nick cave or lifelong fans is there anything just something that you'd like to say to everybody just before we let everyone go yeah you know he's got a pretty big discography and i get that it can be kind of intimidating and he did put out a um, a compilation to help people get into him. But if you're really interested in listening to this guy's music, take a listen to each album chronologically, and you'll hear like how his music evolves. and And that's a really interesting factor about the music. The songs are all going to be great. The quality's always there. So you know, if you're interested in a musical projection, a musical um, uh, trajectory, trajectory, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this is a really cool opportunity to hear how a particular artist has changed over time and has done it successfully. What's the like? What's his magnum opus album, though? What's like the one they're gonna remember me for? <clears throat> I always say "Tender Prey." 
but me and a, another smack writer have always said that for new listeners, a really good one to start is Let Love In. And that comes out in the 2000s? That comes out in 94. Wow. Tender Praise, 88. Mm-hmm. Let Love In is 2000, or 1994. And then if you're interested in the new era, check out Push the Sky Away. That would be a really good one, too. Very, very cool. Um, Nate, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I, I, I'm so happy we got this episode because it's such an important artist, uh, even though I don't know him as intimately as everyone else. It's going to change because uh, <laughs> definitely drive a hard bargain. <laughs> uh, yeah, Aaron, thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here. Anytime, um, anytime. And I'm just so glad you're getting into him now. I, I hope other people at home as well um, yeah. to go check out the <laughs> records. Um, thanks so much. Thanks once more time. Thank you again. My pleasure.